Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Saints, the passage for our call to confession this morning comes from the book of Proverbs, chapter 20, verse 22. This is the word of the Lord. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. As you see in our passage of confession this morning, we are told not to repay evil with evil, but to wait on the Lord, who is our deliverer. Because of our sinfulness and corruption, it is our natural instinct when someone has wronged us to act in kind and to complete the circle, as it were, to repay them the evil that they first paid us. In the third chapter of 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter, who initially is addressing husband and wives, but then expands his exhortation to the entire body, urges them to live in harmony with one another, to be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. And then he goes on, echoing our passage of confession from Proverbs. He instructs them, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because of this, you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. This is not only godly instruction, but it is wise counsel. When people live at length or for duration within close proximity of one another, if you have a family and you repay a family member's evil with evil, then you are not only being disobedient before God, but you are also setting yourself up for hard times. You do, after all, live in shared quarters with this family member. And the same can be applied to neighbors. Unless one of you pulls up roots and leaves the community, for all intents and purposes, you will always live next to one another geographically. If you repay evil with evil, you are setting yourself up to be locked into the determinism of feuding families. And anyone who has read any of the books by Tom Sawyer knows that when he depicts such things, they quickly become nonsensical. See, this is the issue. When we repay evil with evil and think to ourselves, I'm going to complete the circle. I'm going to finish this. What we are actually doing is perpetuating the presence of evil in the world. Christians, however, are called to break this cycle. We don't return evil, but we return that evil with a blessing. Why do we do this? It is because God has done this towards us. We were evil. We betrayed God. God, however, gave us Christ. He gave us the blessing. When a family or a neighbor or the government or foreign nations give us evil, be a Christian, be shaped by the activity of God. Don't respond with evil. Rather, give a blessing and wait on God's deliverance. Wait on God's providential justice. God is the perfect judge. Wait for his decrees with obedience and patience. All of us have failed to do this perfectly, and this reminds us, reminds us of our needs to con- confess our own sins. Therefore, if you're able and willing,
Thanks. The text for our, 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 our sermon this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In our sermon this morning, it is a simple yet a sobering word to the saints. And for those who are taking notes, uh, we'll have an introduction with the reading of Scripture, and then we'll discuss rebellious children, and then move on to the application of being gratuitous children, children who are grateful. Of the writing prophets, Isaiah is considered one of the greatest. And in the New Testament, Christ Jesus and the apostles quote from the book of Isaiah more frequently than from any other Old Testament book. The narrative of the vision of Isaiah is like a two-sided coin regarding its theme and its structure. On the one side, we learn about God's judgment and punishment of his rebellious people. He says in chapter 1, verse 2, they have rebelled. And then he says in chapter 1, verse 4, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger. Then on the other side of this coin, we learn about God's plan to redeem them, to redeem Israel. God says, I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. From Isaiah, the 41st chapter. The Lord will be the Redeemer of rebellious Israel. The story of Isaiah is a testament of God's mercy. Yes, it is true that judgment will come to those who rebel, but the Lord is merciful. He is the Redeemer. The story of Israel's fall and redemption, it harmonizes and it echoes the anticipations revealed in Genesis 3.15, where after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, the Lord promises that from the seed of the woman, a man will come who will crush the head of the enemy. The arc of God's redemptive activity has a formative effect on the lives of believers. It is efficacious, and it will produce true faith and gratitude in the lives of believers. So this morning, saints, my aim is simple, and it is this. I want us to be grateful children. I want us to grow in gratitude and to be nourished in gratitude. God has been merciful to us. If you are a Christian, God has helped you, each and every one of you. He is your Lord. Christ Jesus is your Redeemer. In order to flourish in Christian gratitude, we will look at the first four verses of Isaiah. We will see what the Lord has to give us there. He wants us to grow in gratitude. We must hear and heed the sober reminder plainly laid out before us in this book. And this reminder is that... Our religious and ceremonial works are in vain. They will not be accepted by God unless we do them by calling upon God with true faith. This means that religious rites are inefficacious to counteract our iniquities. So hear the word of our Lord in the book of Isaiah chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, 
a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger. They have gone away backward. The word of our Lord. Let us consider the rebellious children in Isaiah 1. Isaiah chapter 1 is an introduction to the book of Isaiah. And it begins essentially with a trial scene. This opening scene is a courtroom. Israel is on trial. Yahweh has initiated legal proceedings against his rebellious covenant sons. The vision of Isaiah, the first, the first five chapters, they make plain the sins of God's people. That is, of God's sons. Or is, or is also called God's children. And in the Hebrew, it'll, it'll jump back and forth in an English translation. But it, it, is a, it is a masculine word, sons. But it also, it's like the, the English man, where it includes both, both the feminine and male gender. Israel has freely chosen to reject God. Israel has scorned God's nourishment. God says he nourished and brought them up. But instead of cultivating and growing in gratitude, they rebelled against Yahweh. And so risking oversimplification, perhaps we could say that in the book of Isaiah, ingratitude is one of the besetting sins of Israel. They are ingrates. They are ungrateful children. As I mentioned, this is a trial scene. And in verses 2 through 3, the heavens and the earth are called into this court scene as witnesses. God tells the witnesses to hear him, unlike his rebellious children who do not listen. The Lord has spoken, but his sons, his children, they refuse to understand. And that is a motif and a repeated theme throughout Isaiah. God's children do not understand. They have closed ears and shut eyes. God's children, therefore, become obstinate. They are hard-headed and heavy-hearted, and they lack the posture of gratuity. The Lord nourished and brought up these children. The Lord allowed them to rise up, to be lofty and exalted. And truly, the Lord did exalt Israel. It was by the mighty hand of Yahweh alone that Israel was led out of bondage and slavery in Egypt out from under the iron fist of a wicked ruler, Pharaoh. And then they were brought into and through a wilderness to a promised land. God fed and nourished Israel every step along the way. Truly Israel was a nourished child that was exalted. The Lord tabernacled with her and led her across the Jordan River that he parted and then into a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that was, yes, populated with giants, and it was the Lord who, who alone who made them mighty in war against these giants. For as we know from Israel's own um, confession, we look but like grasshoppers next to these men. And it was the Lord alone who brought them up, exalting them, causing them to rise over these enemies, and allowing Israel then to crush the giants under their foot. Yes, Israel was a well-fed child. She was an exalted child, but that was then, and this is now. Now, according to the vision of Isaiah, rebellious Israel has provoked the Holy One of Israel 
unto anger, for they have gone away backward. Rebellious Israel refuses to be fed by Yahweh. They refuse to be brought up and exalted by Yahweh. And because of these iniquities, they have gone backwards. Israel was a well-fed child. She was nourished. But that was then, and this is now. Now, according to the vision of Isaiah, rebellious Israel is laden with iniquity. Israel is heavy with sin and iniquity. She is burdensome. The Lord has spoken. The heavens and the earth have heard in this court scene that the Lord is just and that he will therefore bring judgment upon Israel because of her ingratitude. In fact, Israel's ingratitude is so severe that the Lord compares her to two brute beasts, the ox and the ass, that is, the donkey. As one commentator notes, the ox and the ass dumbly rebuke Israel's ingratitude. And in the Hebrew, there's an emphatic sense where what is is trying to be communicated is that it is utterly unthinkable that children would rebel. This is an unthinkable thing. And it is true. It is unthinkable. But in light of the fall and its twisting effect on the hearts of men, it is a disheartening reality, one that we we are all too familiar with. The effects of the fall are so severe that dumb animals like the ox and the ass have become role models to the children of God, these rebellious children. The ox and the ass know that you don't bite the hand that feeds you. The ox and the ass are acting in harmony with their nature, their created nature. Yes, they are dumb beasts, but they know their master's crib, as the text tells us. That is, they know their master's feeding trough. Rebellious children, however, like Israel, they refuse to understand where their sustenance comes from. They refuse to acknowledge their life source. And this they do repeatedly and freely. It is a chosen decision to reject God. They haven't accidentally done it. They haven't accidentally wandered away. They chose to reject Yahweh. Those who reject God will be punished. This is what Isaiah tells us in the first 40, 43 verses, or chapters of Isaiah. He states it in clear language. It is also something that we know from the, the, the book to the Romans in chapter 1 that both Jew and Gentile alike are guilty before God. They have done this. They have rejected God. And so, as Paul says, God is just in judging both of them. But particularly with Israel's sin here, as I said, it is so severe and their hypocrisy is so corrupting that God calls them a sinful nation in verse 4. And that word in the Hebrew, it's a derogatory name, almost. And really, as the way it functions, it is derogatory. It is a slur for non-Israelite groups. So God is telling Israel, you're a non-Israelite. You're a heathen, as it were. And truly, Israel... They are heathens in Isaiah. As, as, as the word goes on to say, he states that Israel, they are a seed of evildoers. A seed of evildoers. Children that are corruptors. These are covenant children, yes, they have the sign of the covenant upon them, that is circumcision. 
But they are not true children. They are not faithful children. They are not obedient children. They are not thankful children. They have embraced an apostate way of life. Hypocrites, yes. True sons, never. They have all the outward appearance of the thing, but lack the essence and the content. In verses 10 through 15 in chapter 1, we learn that these rebellious sons have surrounded themselves with ceremony upon ceremony upon ceremony. God, however, tells them to hear his word and condemns their faithless religious posturing. And the list is many. He says, and I quote here, They have a multitude of sacrifices. They have new moons. They have appointed feasts. The spreading forth of hands and the making of many prayers. Ceremony upon ceremony upon ceremony. But Yahweh says he hates their feasts, in verse 14, because their hands are full of blood, verse 15. Israel's response to her sins is not repentance. It is not a humble recognition of their heir, and then a thankfulness and gratitude for God's forgiveness and mercy. Rather, Israel's response to her sin is to crank up their religious practices, that is, to gin things up. As it were, you would think by their actions, by this response, that they think God could be controlled by the brute force of their actions. And so it's kind of an illustration Israel is kind of acting like God is a password-protected computer. And this is actually one way that some people hack systems. Is It's called a brute force. You just try over and over and over and over and over again until you get the right password. And so you, they're treating God like this. God is this system that's password-protected, and all of the blessings and all of the goodness, you can get to it, but you just have to figure out the code. That's what they're doing. Or another analogy is, as they stack ceremony upon ceremony upon ceremony, is it's like someone who's trying to swim, and they dive underwater, and they're like, well, if I just keep doing the action, eventually I'll get to the surface. The only problem is they're diving down, and so they're getting further and further and further from air. And so Calvin's commentary on this dual activity which Israel's dual activity is that their sin is mounting, and at the same time, their religious observances are mounting. And so Calvin's commentary on this dual activity is very illuminating. God does require religious, um, he does require religious observances. This is true. He does call us to observe covenant worship. He does call us to participate at the table. He calls us to read scripture, to pray, to spend time in, in, in private devotions. But he doesn't call us to do those things because they, in and of themselves, are efficacious. As Calvin says, begin quote, All their ceremonies, therefore, are nothing else than corruptions of the worship of God. For when their whole attention is given to the outward and naked performance, in what respect do their sacrifices differ from the sacrifices of the Gentiles, which we know were full of sacrilege, because they had no regard to a lawful end? 
This is the reason why the Lord rejects those ceremonies. Though they had been appointed by his authority, because the nation did not consider the object and purpose for which they were enjoined. So God rejects Israel's mounting ceremony upon ceremony upon ceremony because Israel has gotten it all wrong. Rather than focus her attention on God, she has replaced God with ceremony and hugged and kissed and ran away and married her sin. As Calvin notes here, what God is doing in Isaiah is placing Israel's sin in a strong light. As it were, in dealing with his rebellious children, God is throwing the thunderbolts of his words against them. He is throwing the thunderbolts of his words against the hypocrites who cling to corrupted ceremonies. The story, however, does not end with these hard words, with these divine thunderbolts. If we were to read through the rest of Isaiah this morning, we would quickly learn that God judged and cut down Israel, but that a promised remnant would remain, and that this promised remnant would flourish. They will not be utterly destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. He says this very early in chapter 1 and verse 9. Israel will not be utterly destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. There is hope for those who have true faith. God says he will help them because he is their Lord and he is their Redeemer. And because he is merciful, a remnant will remain and then flourish. God will save his true sons. When true sons fall into sin and the Father comes to them speaking his loving word, the true sons, the gratuitous, grateful sons, they hear the word of the Lord and repent. God's chastisement to them is sweet like honey, and they savor it. The hypocrites and the rebellious, rebellious sons, however, they will not be healed. They will not see God's chastisement as something sweet and savorful. Rather, their wounds, their bruises, their putrefying sores will remain unbound and without ointment, as we see in verses 5 and 6. So those are rebellious children, the hypocrites. As we move into application, children of God, the children of God, true sons, they are the ones who are gratuitous. They're the ones grateful for God's mercy, grateful for God's chastisement. What we have seen is sobering. We have learned about covenantal children, a covenant nation that rebelled against Yahweh. God's judgment fell upon the apostate, and his chastisement fell upon his true sons. The hypocrites refused to hear the word of the Holy One of Israel, but the true sons repented and were saved. They were the preserved remnant. As I stated in the beginning of the introduction, I want us to be grateful children. And this morning I have appealed to the vision of Isaiah and the antitype of these rebellious sons, these hypocrites, in order to make one distinction very clear in our minds, and it is this. Growing in gratitude, learning gratitude, involves the reminder that our religious and ceremonial works are in vain. That is, they will not be accepted by God unless we do them by calling upon His name in true faith. So the question for all of us to ask ourselves this morning is this. 
have I called upon God with true faith? Or have I fallen into a life of hypocrisy? If you are a member of this church and you carry the powerful sign of baptism, if you eat weekly at this table before you, you have to ask yourself that question. Are you calling upon God with true faith? Or have you fallen into a life of hypocrisy? Examine your life right now and be honest. Ask yourself, is there a positive correlation between my mounting sins and my mounting ceremonial fervor? Are they pacing one another? That is, ask yourself, am I being like Israel and Isaiah? Ask yourself, is there a positive correlation between my sins and my observance of the church calendar? Is there a positive correlation between my sins and my nearly fervent and obsessive reading of scripture? Or of keeping prayers at length? Or of seeing the Psalms in my house? Is there a positive correlation then in your life that mirrors Israel and Isaiah? Are you a rebellious son? Are you a hypocrite? Or are you a repentant child nourished and brought up by your covenant father? The thunderbolts of the word of our Lord will continue. Fathers, this is directed to you specifically. Are you thankful for your family? Are you thankful for your family, a gift from God to you? As a result, are you mortifying your sins? Are you quickened by the empowerment of the sanctifying Holy Spirit and dying to yourself daily, picking up your cross, and taking on the responsibility of your family? Are you thankful for them? Or are you merely keeping up appearances, all the while abdicating the duties and privileges of your calling as a federal head? Are you thankful for your family? Are you grateful to God for giving you your family, this blessing? And mothers, I ask you, are you thankful for your family? Are you thankful for God's gift to you? Are you submitting yourself to your husband's lead and care? Do you honor him constantly? Are you teaching your children how to respect their father both through word and action by your example? Or are you merely keeping up appearances, all the while cursing your husband on occasion within your heart when you have a disagreement, or when he gently chastises you when he sees an area of your life where you've fallen into sin, where you lack true faith in your, your merciful Lord? And children, please listen. Are you merely keeping up appearances? Nobody but God can see inside your heart. Nobody but God can see through the dark glass of hypocrisy when you give fake smiles. Nobody but God can see through the veil of hypocrisy when outwardly you say to your parents, Yes, Father. Yes, Mother. But then in your heart you meditate to yourself, Yeah, right. As if I'm going to listen to you. 
So children, I ask you, do you care more about naked, outward appearances than the glory of God? These are God's thunderbolts. These are his words coming to us. Therefore, saints, I urge you, if you see hypocrisy in your life, repent and do it now. Run away from sin and cling to God. Cling to Christ's perfect atoning work, completed and perfected for us on the cross. That grace which is extended to us by the instrument of true faith. But what is true faith? The Heidelberg Catechism in question 21, which I imagine you guys covered last week, since you did 22 this week, states it perfectly. Begin the quote. True faith is not only a sure knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also a hearty trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel, that not only to others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. End quote. That is true faith. That is true faith. A hearty trust and a sure knowledge in God's mercy. A hearty trust and a sure knowledge in God's salvation. And a hearty trust and true knowledge of those things, what is the response? It's gratitude. It's gratefulness. Nothing we did brought salvation to us, but only the mercy of God. Therefore, saints, if you have true faith, if you have sure knowledge of God's revelation in his word, and if you also have a hearty trust in the work and inner testimony of the Spirit in your lives, then you are not a rebellious son. You are not enamored with an apostate way of living. If you have true faith, then your response to God's grace will be this. You will grow in gratitude. You will thank God for his good gift to you. Grateful children do not continue to crank up religious rites and spiritual observances while their sins are mounting, line upon line upon line. Grateful children rest entirely in God's kind providence to them in Christ. Grateful children rest in God's grace by the instrument of true faith. They know that religious rites are inefficacious to counteract their iniquities and their sin. Therefore, saints, turn your attention to the supper that is before you. This table has been prepared for you. Grateful children, come with open hands to the Father who loves to give good gifts. Therefore, as a Christian, if you are struggling with sin and hypocrisy, I urge you to lose sight of yourself, to lose sight of your efforts to earn your salvation, and you do that by the instrument of true faith, by focusing solely on Jesus Christ and his perfect work accomplished on your behalf, whereby he atoned for your, your very own sin. Therefore, Christian, this morning, learn and flourish in gratitude by coming to the table. Learn and grow in gratitude. You are God's children. Come to his table now. Please pray for me.
ones who have been granted faith to believe and have been called by Christ, we are the bride of Christ, and we are like a fruitful vine growing in the gardens around the sides of our Father's house. And as children of God, we are like olive shoots growing up around his table. We often come here at the table, we're mindful of our own weakness and our own frailty and our own sins. But there is something that we need to remember here. God does not measure things the same way that we do. His scale of value is different than our own. Which is more impressive, a small grapevine or a stately elm tree? Which is more striking, two rows of grapevines or two rows of majestic oak trees that are turning in the fall? Well, the trees are more impressive, but the vines are actually more fruitful. And comparing the grape trees to the olive trees, the olive trees are much smaller. They're very gnarly and small in stature, but they are more fruitful. God delights in bringing fruit out of small vines and out of small things. He delights in the olive shoots around his table, and we should delight here as we gather in that capacity. That is what we are, and we must not chafe against what we are. You are here at this table, and he chooses to nourish you here. He does not turn to you and turn you into a majestic tree, but he does make you fruitful. So come, welcome to Christ. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.